Before I read the text and pray, let me just give us a word here about where we are in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, The last couple of weeks, we've been in Matthew chapter 10. If you remember in Matthew 10, Jesus has been giving the disciples warnings about opposition. He's been saying, listen, as you guys go out to speak about the kingdom and about me, expect that there will be opposition. And now we enter into a phase here in the ministry of Jesus where we begin to see opposition in various forms. It begins with today's passage with something pretty surprising. If you haven't heard this in a while, you may you read this, you go, wow, John the Baptist himself is struggling with doubt about the identity of Jesus. That's pretty astonishing. And then after that, we see that the cities in Galilee where Jesus spent much of His ministry were indifferent to Him and essentially rejected Him. And then in chapter 12, there's controversies with the religious leaders who are really opposed to Jesus and trying to shut Him down. They want Him to be quiet. They want Him to go away. And this continues into chapter 13, where Jesus gives a whole bunch of parables throughout the long chapter, chapter 13, and Jesus explains the nature of the kingdom. And He says what? He says the kingdom is going to grow slowly over time, and there are going to be a variety of responses to the good news parable of the soils, and on and on. It goes from there. And this reaches a climax in Matthew 16 when Jesus finally says directly to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And they have to kind of come to terms with who He is and what kind of Messiah He will be. So just picture now in the coming chapters, we are dealing with increasing opposition to Jesus and the kind of Messiah He is. All right, I'm going to read the first 15 verses, Matthew chapter 11. This is the word of the Lord. When Jesus had finished instructing His twelve disciples, He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by His disciples and said to Him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force." For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has an ear, let him hear. Let's bow our heads together again. Heavenly Father, as we spend a fair amount of time today discussing the issue of doubt in the Christian life, God, I pray that you would give us comfort and guidance I know that there are all kinds of different ways in which Christians may struggle with doubt. There might be doubt about the truth of Christianity. There might be doubt about the truthfulness of Jesus and the bodily resurrection. There might be doubt 
about whether I am a Christian, whether someone is a believer. There are various doubts that we struggle with at times in the Christian life. I know for some Christians, there is less of a struggle with these doubts. For others, it is more of a prominent uh, struggle in life. But God, for wherever we are in the issue of doubt, I pray that we would be encouraged, strengthened, urged to press on in our walk with You. And I also pray that we could learn how to be a better encouragement to others who struggle around us. So God, help us, comfort us, draw us to You, and give us great faith to believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the message today has three points, relatively straightforward points. Number one, John doubts Jesus. John doubts Jesus, verses one through three. Number two, Jesus reassures John, verses four to six. And point number three, Jesus reassures the crowd about John, uh, verses seven, it should say seven to 15. I I think I put a typo in there. Verses seven to 15, uh, Jesus reassures the crowd about John. So John doubts Jesus is point number one. And let's look again, I'm going to reread as we go, verses 1 through 3. When Jesus had finished instructing His 12 disciples, He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. This is the cities of Galilee. Now when John, John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, He sent word by His disciples and said, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now some of my sub-points underneath here I'm adapting from other writers, just so you know, uh, under under my first point. So a couple things I want to mention here. A man as great and convictionally just astonishing as John the Baptist could fall into a time of doubt about the person of Jesus. That should be a reassuring thing to all of us feeble, failing Christians, right? We should be astonished by the truth of the fact that John the Baptist struggled with doubt. And as we look through this text, even these first verses, we see some of the reasons why John is struggling with doubt. Let me mention the first, and very. these are obvious things when you look at the verse, Where is John when his doubt begins? He's in prison. He's been in prison, most commentators think, for about a year at this point. Can you imagine that? About a year and a half of active ministry where he was very popular with the people. All of Jerusalem, we're told, had gone out to see him, and many were baptized of repentance, and he baptized Jesus, called him the Christ. He had this amazing moment shining in the spotlight. Jesus said in John 5, you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light, in John's light. But then... He spoke ill of King Herod, called him out for his sexual morality, and you know what happens when you speak ill of kings, he gets put in jail. So John is now in one of Herod's prisons where he has been sitting for about a year, and I will just tell you something, it is during the trials of the Christian life that you are most likely to struggle with doubts in the Christian life. Not always. Sometimes you struggle on the happy days, but I would, I would, I would think that it would be normally true that when do doubts tend to spring up? when times are not as we wanted, when times were not as we would have chosen, when things are difficult and trying, that is when we are more likely to struggle with doubt. And that should be expected, shouldn't it? They're called trials because they put our, te- our faith on trial. They, they test our faith. And in the process, remember Peter says, faith is like gold that gets put, imagine gold that's dug up out of the ground, it has imperfections in it, it has dross and all kinds of things in it, and so what do you do? You take it and the goldsmith places it in the fire and burns the gold, and then it burns out the imperfections, and then this happens over and over until the gold is totally perfected. The Lord loves you too much to not test your faith, try your faith, and to put your faith in the furnace of affliction to see the imperfections and the failings of your faith, to have them burned out, and to see your faith strengthened and more rightly established, 
In Sunday school, Greg, we were just talking about Abraham, and Abraham had 25 years of waiting before Isaac was born. Do you think his faith was tested for 25 years? He's like, I'm not getting younger here. We're waiting for a son. I'm in my 90s now. When is this ever going to happen? 25 years of agonizing waiting. The Lord, all he had to trust was God's promise. And did God prove true to his word? Of course. But in the trial, it is not always as easy for us to see that. So God is going to test our faith. He's going to put us in the furnace of affliction. It's going to be painful, but the Lord is doing it because He loves us and He wants our faith to be fully and firmly fixed on Him. To say, listen, even in times when I don't know what God is up to, I can't even make sense out of what's happening, I have to trust the character of God. I have to trust that the God who sent His Son to die on the cross for my sins and raise Him from the dead, that God is trustworthy even when the things in my life appear to be falling apart. Will my faith trust or will I give in to doubt and ultimately unbelief when trials come my way? Trials can weary us, perplex us, make us vulnerable to doubt. Let me mention another thing here. John has largely been isolated from other believers for the past year. We know he wasn't completely cut off because did he send two? He sent some disciples, right? I think Luke tells us it was two disciples. He sent two disciples from prison to go speak to Jesus. So did he have some access to some of his people? Yes. But do you think it was anything like it was before prison? No. I can guarantee you that the access he had to his own disciples was very limited at this point compared to before prison. And so guess what? When you are cut off from Christian community, you're going to expect, it is very common, that doubt can arise. Even unbelief can begin to rear its head. We desperately need each other. I know we quote it all the time, but Hebrews talks about this. It says, don't, when, I'm going to paraphrase a lot here, but when Hebrews says, don't let unbelief get the victory, how does it tell us to fight unbelief in Hebrews? Encourage one another every day as long as it is called today that you not be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. So how do we fight unbelief? How do we not let doubt fester into unbelief? We need to be surrounded by a godly community who we can go to with our struggles. Isolation is not what the believer is made for. Let me, let me just say, I know you're, you're here in church today, so I understand that this application is something that you are fulfilling in this moment. I want to say to all of us, Skipping church is not optional in the Christian life. We can't just say, well, I just don't feel like the hassle of getting up and going today. Listen, I understand if there's an illness in the family, if there's a physical reason you cannot go to church, I understand that there are exceptional situations. I'm not addressing those situations. The Lord is with you and understands if you are physically unable to go to church. I'm not talking about that. But if the reason I'm not going is just because, frankly, I don't feel like it, listen, My goal here isn't just to condemn or to beat over the head. Listen, you are missing out on God's grace that is given to you through the other people in this church or through whatever church you may be a member of if if you're a visitor. The Lord has grace for you, and the grace comes through fallible people like you and me. And let me just ask you, I ask this periodically, have you ever left church more encouraged than when you came? Has that ever happened before? You say, man, I know I got to go today. If I'm being honest in my heart of hearts, don't really want to go. You might have these moments. We've got to use a little willpower sometimes to get going, right? We've got, we, we got to go. This is not optional. This is, we're not going to play around with this. Why? Because the Lord meets with His people through the gathered body, partly through the preached Word, partly through praying together, partly through singing together, and 
partly through gathering in community groups or after service, talking to one another, texting or calling during the week, the Lord uses us in each other's life truly to spur us on in our walk. And John was largely missing out on this during his time in prison, and perhaps that led to more of his doubt festering. Reminds me of, you know, John is the fulfillment of Elijah, remember? He's the new Elijah. Remember, Elijah had a similar struggle. Didn't Elijah have a similar struggle? Elijah won that great victory at Mount Carmel. Remember, fire came down from heaven and burned up the offering. The prophets of Baal were put to death. Clearly, the Lord was Yahweh, not the, not the false uh, gods of, of, of Baal, of the, the Canaanite gods. He won this massive victory. And then soon, he is physically exhausted. Remember, he hasn't had food, rest, and he asked the Lord to take his own life. And the Lord, the Lord doesn't respond by, by hitting him over the head with, with something. What does the Lord do? He brings an angel. He tells him to rest. The angel makes him cakes. I don't know what that was. It just sounds incredible. Whatever the angel cakes, that sounds incredible. The angel's making him some food. He wakes up and eats. He goes back to sleep. He wakes up. The angel touches him, gives him more to eat. He sleeps again. And over and over, a jar of water is provided. And the Lord is the Lord being gentle to Elijah in a moment of terrible doubt and failure in that moment. He asked for death. The great prophet asked for death. How could that happen? Well, just like John was a great prophet, he, like, like Elijah, had a moment here of stumbling, and the Lord reassures him graciously and kindly. But let me tell you what I think the real, for John, I think the biggest reason his doubt comes is theological. I think it came from false expectations about Jesus. False expectations about Jesus. Now listen, this is not just some remote theological thing. This is radically applicable to every single person in this room. Because we all have notions in our mind of what God is like, right? R.C. Sproul wrote a book on systematic theology. He did, he, you know what he called it? He called it, Everyone's a Theologian. Because does everyone have some picture of what God is like in their head? Yes. And what we think about God is extremely important, right? What we think about God is extremely important. And if we are wrong in who we understand God to be, will we misunderstand what is going on around us in our lives? And might we be more prone to doubt God in His goodness and His character and His mercy if we don't understand His good, powerful, and providential ruling in this world? Yes. We must know God better in order to thrive in the midst of difficulty. And listen, we love John the Baptist. He is a model to us, but there was something faulty in his doctrine. Let, let, me, let me quickly mention this. You can turn to John chapter 3, just, I mean Matthew chapter 3, just a few chapters to your left. Matthew chapter 3, look at verse 10. And this is John's message. Again, nothing he says here is wrong, but you will see that there's an assumption, I think, that was not correct. Look at Matthew 3, verse 10. This is John's message. Even now, John says, the axe is laid to the root of the, of, of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Skip to the end of 11. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Do, do you see what John is thinking here? John is picturing the first coming of Jesus, the Messiah, a lot like we picture the what? The second coming, right? So he's picturing the Messiah will arrive, and immediately there will be a separation of the sheep from the goats, right? Immediately the wheat and the chaff will be separated. Some will be blessed with eternal life. Some will enter into fire, into eternal judgment. And that's going to happen, he thinks, as soon as the Messiah shows up on the scene. John does not yet fully understand that there will be, there will be two advents, right? There will be two comings of Christ. He does not know that in, in his mind. So he expects when Jesus shows up, it is going to be salvation and judgment happening simultaneously. John gets locked up in prison. 
His disciples give him news of what's happening with Jesus, and here's what he hears. Jesus is preaching to the poor. He's hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, eating meals with them. That doesn't seem to fit with his view of judgment, right? And he keeps hearing that the Lord is talking about mercy and blessed are the poor in spirit. And he's hearing these kinds of things. This does not fit with the Jesus I thought was coming, that the Messiah I thought was coming. And so John has, I think, his deepest torment here. I think his greatest fear was this. What if I introduce the world to the wrong Messiah? Because the Messiah that Jesus is is not the Messiah I expected. He's nothing like in some ways. Well, he is, I don't want to exaggerate. He was somewhat like he thought, but not entirely like he thought. And so because there were some things not clearly put together in John's thinking, did that create doubt? Yes, it did. Now, let's make this practical. Let's go back to the issue of suffering because it is so relevant. We spent six months in Sunday school talking about the providence of God. We spent half a year on the providence of God, which, which what we mean by that, if that's new to you, what we mean by that is this, that God is sovereignly ordaining whatever comes to pass in our lives, no matter how pleasant or painful, and God brings those things into our life without Himself sinning. He never is guilty of sin, but He orchestrates the events of our lives down to the details in such a way that the hardships and joys of life are all meted out by His fatherly plan for His glory and for our good no matter what it may be that comes into our life. Now listen, if we don't have a, a clear understanding of that in our thinking, do you understand how difficult the Christian life is going to become? If when hardship comes that does not immediately make sense to me, I'm going to be challenged and be tempted to doubt the very goodness of God. If God were good, why would this be happening? I don't see any good reason for this. It makes no sense to me. If there's a good God who's in control, why is this happening in my life? Isn't this a common struggle, right? We need what the Scripture teaches about God's good purposes in difficult times in order to make sense out of the life that we have to live. And listen, when, when we, over time, by God's grace, begin to make those baby steps, where when the second trial comes, we trust a little bit more than maybe the first trial. You know how this works? That's why the, the Scripture says from glory to glory. We, we move on from, it's progressive. It happens over time. Then, not to embarrass a Jerry Edgar here, but Jerry now... As of this past September, 40 years in the wheelchair. 17, he was paralyzed in a football accident. He's been in the wheelchair for 40 years. You, you can ask Jerry, has the Lord provided grace and shaped his character and given a greater knowledge of himself through four decades of suffering and difficulty? Does, does Jerry know the Lord better now after four decades of that suffering than he would have known the Lord without those four decades of suffering? He will tell you absolutely by God's grace, yes. So listen, do we need a theology of suffering and challenge and difficulty in our life and know that God is good behind it even when we cannot trace His hand, we trust His heart, we know that God has my good and His glory in mind no matter what. And listen, if I'm tempted to doubt, we look to Calvary. If I'm ever tempted to doubt the goodness of God, you look at Calvary and you say, there's no way God doesn't care about me. Look what He did for me. He did not withhold His Son, His only Son from me. And if God gave Jesus for sinners, there's no way God is going to make a mistake with the rest of His providence in your life. That's Romans 8.32. That is the logic of Romans 8.32. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all that we need? All that we need. If that is in place, do you see that will help us with our doubts? So John needed a correct theology of Messiah, and he needed to know Jesus is coming now to bear wrath, not to give wrath. I did not come into the world to judge the world, right? He came the first time to bear the sword, not to have the sword. He took it into his into his into his self. 
The Roman nails pierce him. He doesn't pierce the Romans. He comes the first time to bear judgment. Yes, the second time he will come to give judgment. But we must have our theology correct or we will be deeply confused about God's activity in our lives. Okay, point number two. Jesus reassures John. Verses four to six. Jesus reassures John. And let me just say this. John did something very right in the midst of his doubt. What did he do? He went to Jesus. It's like John knew at the end of the day, he knew he could trust Jesus. He knew that if he could send word to Jesus, he knew that whatever Jesus would tell him would be trustworthy. Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? He knew that what Jesus would tell him would be reliable. Deep down, he knew because he was a true believer. So here's what we must say to ourselves. If I'm struggling with doubt, if I'm, if I'm having some struggle in my life, am I going to go to Jesus with it? That, that's, that sounds like such a trite Sunday school answer. Do you know what that means in practicality? So on a Thursday night, when some, str- some difficult things have happened in a week, when you're in your house on a Thursday evening, do you know what it's like to go into a private space, close the door when no one's around, to open your Bible and bow your head and to pour out your complaint before the Lord? That's what the psalmist did. I pour out my complaint before the Lord. I tell my trouble before him. Do we have that kind of relationship with our Father who loves us, a throne of grace that we can come before? Do you have that kind of relationship with the Lord God where you can go before Him in the name of Jesus and say, Lord, I'm really struggling right now. I'm struggling. Lord, please help me. Why are you cast down, O my soul? We just sung this, right? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I will again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Do do we preach truth to ourselves and do we pour out our complaint before the Lord in his presence? John did that. He went to Jesus with his doubt. Do we learn, are we learning increasingly how to go to Jesus with our doubt? So Jesus is going to reassure John. Let's look here, verse 4. And Jesus answered him, go and tell John what you see, what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let me start with the verse 6. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I know that the way I am acting is going to go against a lot of expectations. Don't throw me out because I don't meet your expectations. Has the Lord ever done something in your life that did not meet your personal expectations? Yes. Do not be offended or scandalized by Jesus because he is not meeting your preconceived notion of how he should act in your life. We need to go to Scripture and see what Scripture says and align what God does with his own word. So there's a blessing for those who do not reject the Lord. But what is Jesus' real answer here about the blind receiving their sight, etc.? Okay, you can jot this down if you don't want to look this up right now. If you, if you, if you jot down verses here, you can jot down Isaiah 35, 4, and 5. And Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Isaiah 35, verses 4 and 5. And Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. These are the two passages Jesus is quoting in his response to John. Now, why would Jesus quote Isaiah to John? If there, now, I'm sure John knew his whole Old Testament. But do you know what book John definitely knew? It was the book he was in. <laughs> the book, if there was a book of the Bible that specifically mentioned you, you'd probably be pretty aware of what that book said. So Isaiah mentions John the Baptist in chapter 40. Like, he will be the voice that prepares the way in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That's about John the Baptist. Did John know that, that book of Isaiah? He knew it very well. And so Jesus goes to the book of Isaiah and he quotes Isaiah twice back to John. And it's amazing 
what he says. Just, just listen here if you don't have time to flip around. Here's Isaiah chapter 35. Here's what, here's what it says. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Does that sound familiar to what he's saying here? Now look, the verse right before that says this. Fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So God is coming with judgment, wrath. And then it says here, the blind shall see, the ears will be, the ears, the deaf will be unstopped. Okay, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Think the word is Messiah, anointed me uh, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound, and to proclaim the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus takes two texts about the Messianic age from Isaiah, written 700 years before Jesus is born. He takes two passages, and Jesus goes, see, look, what Isaiah said would happen when the Messiah comes, I'm doing it right now. The blind are seeing. No, as I mentioned, no one in the Old Testament with blindness is healed. This is a Jesus thing that's happening now for the first time. The dead are being raised up. Jesus is doing what Isaiah said would happen. And you know what Jesus leaves out of both quotes? The wrath of God. The vengeance of our God. He leaves that part out of both texts. Why? What's he saying? He's saying, John, I am the fulfillment of what Isaiah predicted, but the judgment is going to come later. I'm coming right now to bring the mercy and freedom right now. I'm not coming to bring judgment. That will come later when the Messiah returns. But right now I'm coming to do this thing. John, trust me. I am the one who is to come. I am the one Isaiah predicted. All this will be fulfilled, but it may not be the way you think. That's what I think Jesus is doing in his answer to John. Point number three. Jesus reassures the crowd about John. This is verses 7 to 15. Jesus reassures the crowd about John. Now, just follow here. Why are we talking about that right now? Follow this. Jesus does not want John... Okay, follow me here. Jesus does not want John the Baptist doubting to undermine the credibility of his ministry because he was a faithful prophet. Okay, he was truly speaking God's word. Jesus does not want the crowd to hear, oh, John was doubting. Maybe we shouldn't trust John. We shouldn't trust his message. John's message was ultimately about Jesus. You see, we don't want to undermine John's ministry. He was a faithful prophet of God. So now Jesus defends John. Does that make sense? So Jesus is trying to, to get us away from doubt. And he wants to reestablish the credibility of John here if it was, if, if it was questioned. So here we go. Why, do, why should we trust John the Baptist? Jesus gives us a number of reasons why. Number one, John wasn't blown around by popular opinion. Verse 7, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Let me add the next point here. V- verse 8, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. So John wasn't blown around by popular opinion. Do you get the analogy here? You got a reed next to a riverbank, right? Just a, a plant that can be easily blown over. Every time the wind blows, the reed blows in the direction of the wind, right? The wind blows east, it, it leans east. If it blows west, it, it leans west. This reed just goes with whatever the wind is doing. Is that what John was? Just a, was he kind of got to lick his finger, hold it up to popular opinion? Okay, right now people want to hear more of X. Okay, I'm going to preach on X. Oh, now people want to hear Y. I'm going to preach on Y. Is John just bending with the popular opinion of the moment? No. I will tell you, there is a major pressure in our culture today to bend 
to the proclivities of our culture. To say, what is the thing that the culture wants to hear us say or deny right now? And I'm going to say or deny it no matter what Scripture says. Jesus says, no, don't do that. John did not do that. We should not be a reed blown around by popular opinion. Absolutely not. Number two, hanging out in king's palaces, John is not hanging around the elite trying to win the influence and the prestige of the most influential people in society, the kings. In fact, he called out the king, and that's why he's in the king's prison. He's not trying to impress the king. He called out anybody. He'll call out anybody. He called out the king. That's why he's in jail. He's not trying to please man. He is trying to please God. He is a faithful prophet. Number three, John was a prophet. Look at verse nine. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So two things. John was a prophet. He spoke God's very words. Number two, he was more than a prophet. How was John more than a prophet? He was more than a prophet in this way. Scripture explicitly predicted him. Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi chapters 3 and 4 all predict that John the Baptist will make the way for the Lord. So two books of the Bible predict John. Two books of the Bible predict John. Does that make him more than just a prophet? Yeah, the Bible explicitly predicts someone who's a forerunner to Yahweh, the Messiah, who will come in the flesh. So that makes him more than a prophet. We could go through those verses. We won't do that right now. Those are important. But now listen to this. Verse 11. Jesus gives a compliment to John that is astonishing. Truly I say to you, among those born of women... There has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. We'll come back to this in a second. Let's just just take that for a moment and think about it. Jesus is saying John the Baptist is greater than Abraham, Moses, Isaiah, King David. That's a pretty astonishing compliment. Jesus says, there has been no one born greater than John the Baptist. Now, Jesus was born six months after John the Baptist, so he's greater than John the Baptist. But we'll get to that in a second. Jesus says, listen, up until the birth of John, he's the greatest person to have ever been born. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, his greatness is, uh, is pretty clear here. Let me, let me try to explain this. Prophets for centuries had been saying, he's coming, right? Isaiah, he's coming. Micah, he's coming. Genesis with Moses, He's coming. But what did John have the privilege to do that not even Moses did? John said, that's him right there. He's standing right here. I'm baptizing him right now. This man in front of me that I'm touching as I baptize him, this man is the one whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He ranks before me because he was before me. This is God's very son, the Lamb of God. Behold him. He takes away the sin of the world. This is the one right here. So all the other prophets were great because they pointed to Jesus, but they weren't as great as John. Because John introduced us to Jesus by name. This man, Jesus, is the Messiah right here. This is him. That made John greater than anyone who came before him. Now, I want you to think about the astonishing thing Jesus is saying right now. Uh, My wife and I had the privilege of hearing Don Carson in person uh, for a conference a few months ago, preach or go through the the Gospel of Matthew for like four or five, for a few days. And um, it was in North Carolina. And Don Carson got up and he said, imagine... Because he had a guy who would introduce him, you know, a guy would introduce him when he got up to speak. He said, imagine if I, if I said this, uh, John or whatever the guy's name is, John, just introduce me. I want you to know John is the greatest man who has ever been born in the history of the world. You say, why is that? Because he had the privilege of introducing me. 
your speaker for the evening. <laughs> he, said, he said, you'd call the guys with the white straight jackets to get me hauled out of here if that's what I said. He said, what kind of incredible audacity, what kind of arrogance would it be to say something like that? This man is the greatest man who has ever lived because he introduced the world to yours truly. What kind of incredible thing? Well, it's either arrogance on the level of lunacy or Jesus means exactly what he's saying. And if he is God in the flesh, then it's actually literally true. And a statement, ironically, of a kind of humility, because he's saying what is absolutely true and necessary to hear, that John's very greatness lied in the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh. And when John introduced the world to Jesus, it was the greatness of Jesus that made John great. You see? Now, let me say one more thing. I'm going to come back to that point here. I've got to talk about a difficult verse, verse 12, and we're late in the sermon that's okay. We can be even later in just a second. So, okay. Verse 12, very difficult verse. I don't have the final word on it, but I'll at least say a couple things I think I can say about it here. Verse 12. Jesus continues, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Just to oversimplify on this, okay, uh, here's the debate. The debate is this. Are we to take these statements as negatives or positives? The kingdom suffered violence, could be translated the kingdom forcefully advances, which would be a good thing. Suffers violence is negative, forcefully advances is positive. And then violent, uh, the violent take it by force could be positive or negative. It could be evil, violent men are trying to stop the kingdom and they're fighting against it. That's, that's one interpretation. The other interpretation is positive, and it's closer to what Luke 16, 16 says, that those who want to get in the kingdom have to fight to get in. They've got to do everything they can to strive to enter the kingdom. So it could be a holy violence by which we enter into the kingdom. I think that's what Luke 16, 16 is saying. I don't think that's what Matthew eleven twelve 12 is saying. So here's, here's my best guess on this. I, I, as, as Alistair Begg one time said, I reserve the right to change my mind before I get to the parking lot, <laughs> which is how I feel about the first part of this thing. There is a, there's a big debate on whether it, the kingdom of heaven should be suffering violence or forcefully advancing. What, is it positive or negative? Here, here's what I'll say that's, I think, safe. We know either way, either way you interpret this, both statements are basically true. In other words, the kingdom is advancing through the ministry of Jesus. That's true. The kingdom is advancing. Number two, is there opposition? Yes. So we know both are true. The question is, what is Jesus teaching? I'm going to lean towards the more negative take on this, which is how most translations take it. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, as in people are opposing it. And I think the last part is almost certainly negative. The violent take it by force. That word for the violent is almost always used negatively in Greek for bad, evil people who are violent towards people in a sinful way. I think probably what Jesus means here is this. And by the way, in context, this makes perfect sense. He's talking John is in prison under the king. He's about to be put to death. Is the kingdom advancing? Yes. But is it suffering violence? Yes, literally. And are the violent, like Herod, trying to take it by force? Yes. They've got John locked up. They're about to kill him. Jesus will soon be killed himself. Yes, the kingdom, the true kingdom is going to advance. It is going to take over. It's going to move forward. The kingdom will be advancing across all nations, but will hostility also be advancing against the kingdom as time goes on? Yes. And so, the kingdom will suffer violence, the true kingdom, and the violent, the evil people will try to seize it, take it, stop it by force and using even at times violent means to do so. And John the Baptist is case in point. So here's the point. Does John's imprisonment prove that John is a false prophet? No, it proves he's a real prophet. The kingdom of heaven, the real kingdom is suffering violence. And those who are faithful are going to encounter opposition. I think contextually that makes the most sense. Okay, now I want to get to the last part. 
Back to verse 11. Let me read it again. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That really is astonishing. What does that mean? So if you are a brand new Christian, let's say a 10-year-old child has been a Christian for half an hour, Jesus would say, that 10-year-old Christian who's been a Christian for 30 minutes is greater than John the Baptist, right? The least in the kingdom is greater than John. I don't think that's even controversial. I think that's exactly what he's saying. So if you're a believer in the room right now, you are greater than John the Baptist. And he was greater than David, Abraham, and Moses, so you're, you're, you're pretty great. Wow. What is Jesus saying about the least in the kingdom? Okay, it's not about us being great. It's about Jesus being great, and here's, here's what I think it means. I don't think it's that hard to understand, actually. Here, here's what I think he means. Okay, just hang with me here. Prophets of the Old Testament were great because they predicted the Messiah, Right? John shows up, he is greater than all of them. Why? Because of the greater clarity with which he presents the Messiah. This man right here is the Messiah. So John's greatness is the clarity with which he presents the Messiah to the world, right? Now, here's the thing. A 10-year-old who's been a Christian for 30 minutes knows more clearly the gospel of Jesus than John the Baptist did. Because a 10-year-old will say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and John the Baptist couldn't have known to say that precisely. So does a 10-year-old Christian understand the gospel with greater specificity and clarity than John the Baptist? Yes, he does. She does. So this is an encouraging thing for all of us in this room. Your greatness is not about your money. It's not about what people think about you. Your greatness is not about your reputation or how well your kids turn out or whatever, your job. That's not what makes you great. What makes you great is that you know the gospel of Jesus. And if you can tell the gospel of Jesus to others with clarity and with specificity that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he bore the wrath of God in his body. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He rose to new life. He's ascended into heaven. He's defeated Satan and angels and demons, all that have opposed him. He will come again to judge the world in righteousness. In that moment, you are stating the gospel with greater clarity than John, which makes makes you greater than John the Baptist. And it's not because you're great, it's because the message of Jesus is what makes Christians great. That's what gives us our greatness. So be encouraged. Let me, let me, close, let me close with a quote here from, from Don Carson. Quote, so often Christians want to establish their greatness with reference to their work, their giving, their intelligence, their preaching, their gifts, their courage, their discernment. But Jesus unhesitatingly affirmed that even the least believer is greater than Moses or John the Baptist simply because of his or her ability living on this side of the coming of Jesus the Messiah to point him out with greater clarity and understanding than all his forerunners ever could. If we really believe this truth, it will dissipate, it will, it will destroy all our cheap vying for position in this world and force us to recognize that our significance lies simply in our witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, I pray that you would help us even now to examine our own heart. Lord, are there areas in our life where we are vying for position? We're trying to get a kind of worldly greatness that's a, a false version of true greatness, and we are overlooking 
the simplicity and the glory of the gospel itself? What gives us greatness is not the worldly accomplishments that we may or may not possess. What makes us great is that we know the Lord Jesus Christ. To be known by the Lord Jesus is the most valuable thing in the world. And to be able with clarity to explain the basics of the gospel is the greatest thing we are capable of doing in this life. So God, I pray that we would find our greatness in Christ, in His accomplishments, in His finished work, in His intercession at the, at the right hand of, of You, Lord, at this moment, on behalf of all of His people. Help us to find our greatness in You. And I pray that our doubts and even our unbelief would flee away as we look to Christ, as we find encouragement from one another, and as we turn to Your Word for a fresh a renewal and revival in our own heart. So be with us now as we sing. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.